So, David. So, Michelle. In uh, true form for you, yes. you organised a guest. Correct. Said you'd send me background. I did. I got nothing. Uh, that's pretty much me. Right? Yep. That's the way I operate. Is that know? because you're still so in spy land that you need to keep everything Well, partly secret. that. And partly <laughs> I have been dealing with my wife who just had major dental surgery and got kind of caught up with that. Okay, fun. Right, so, so, what are we doing? Right. Early Christmas present. Oh, my God. I love Christmas present. Early Christmas present and also early Christmas present idea for everyone listening right now. Okay. Right. This is – I'm really excited about this because this is Australia's very own John le Carre. <gasps> Stop. No, I'm not kidding. We're talking serious spy fiction oh going on Oh, my God, I'm here. so excited. Spy fiction that's actually rooted in reality, mm. starting from the early 60s and running right through up until now. Oh, my gosh. We have the author of no fewer than eight, and I know there's at least two more in the pipeline, yeah. of Australian-based spy fiction. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. And he's an old mate. Let's drop in. Let's have a chat. You're listening to I Spy, the stocking stuffer of Australian intelligence. Hello? What? 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 Oh, you're in the stocking. I stuffed myself in your stocking. I did not want that. Your stockings are really sheer. Can you just get out? Sorry. Bye. Hello and welcome to I Spy. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm here with David Callan and he just sprung a guest on me. I didn't know anything about this guest. I've had no opportunity to do any background. But as per usual, I'll just wing it. You always do wing very well. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the studio the blanket fort of fun. Please welcome Harry P. Russell. Harry, wonderful to have you in. Thanks, David. It's good to be in. <laughs> well, yeah, it is good to have you here because... I don't know if you've listened to our um, podcast before, but I've spent three years listening to this man. So it's always very, very nice to have someone else in the studio with us. So, and what a delight it is. So before we get stuck in, why don't we do a brief rundown of your biography? Yeah. Okay. I was born the same (laughs) year as ASIO was. Um, Wait wait a minute. You mean you're a twin? (laughs) I am a twin. Excellent. Uh, but probably a couple of months before ASIO, I uh, was born in the late late 1949. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I'm a sand groper, West Australian. Yep. Yep. Uh, we won't that, hold that against you. No, no please don't. <laughs> I began uh, after my university graduation, I began my career in journalism, mm. print journalism. Okay. For a paper called The Daily News, which no longer exists, okay. unfortunately. And I was recruited by the organisation whilst I was working for that newspaper. Now, so. now, now, that's a fascinating thing because, I mean... We do talk about this quite a bit, like yeah, how journalists... Yeah, well, basically how I basically tripped over and fell into ASIO. Yeah. How did you wind up working for the organisation? I mean, how... How did the recruiting come about? They didn't uh, recruit the way they recruit now. It was all, it wasn't even tap on the shoulder. This was a phone call. Mm. It's actually fairly extraordinary. I was sitting in the uh, newsroom working on one of my stories. Um, I wasn't even a D-grade journalist (laughs) at that point. So I was still learning the trade and I got a phone call from a guy called well, uh, let's call him Smith. Yeah, okay. let's call, it, yeah, let's call yeah, him let's Smith. Let's go for Let's not put... So, not... Uh, Mr. Smith said, uh, you're PD. Yes, that's who I am. What, uh, what's your story, Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith said, well, you are the story. And I thought, what? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? And I said, look, let's not bug around. I've got a deadline to, to fill. Yeah. 20 minutes. Just tell, give me the details. If I need to interview you, he said, yes, you need to interview me, but I need to interview you first. Wow. Oh, my God. That's when I got interested because 
he didn't have anything to tell me. He wanted me to talk to him. Exactly. Curiosity got the better of me. And, well, you're uh, a journalist. It's always going to. <laughs> absolutely. So um, you've seen the Maxwell Smart opening line where he goes in the telephone and yeah. down the... <laughs> The building was something like that. Certainly the lift was something like that. I'm not kidding. This is in Perth, in the centre wow. of the city. Yeah. So Perth Regional Office. Uh, no, it was a uh, it was oh. an interview room. Oh, oh okay. Well, no, right. they, they wouldn't expose someone who wasn't even no, recruited to a regional office. So um, Mr. Smith, I finally found him down various corridors and mm. knocked on the door, you know, almost three times and said a secret word nearly. Um, <laughs> I was bemused. And uh, actually, he was bemused too when he met me, so it was it was mutual. Mutual bemusement mutual always bemusement. helps. Mutual bemusement. He had obviously an agenda. I wanted to know what it was. I didn't know who he was and who he represented. And you know, it wasn't until the second interview that I had with him that I found out that he was interviewing me for a job in ASIO. Mm. Well, I didn't know I was working for ASIO until I actually got the job. I mean, <laughs> no one told me. I, well, they probably told me. I just didn't pay attention. How, um, how did they get hold of you? Like how did mm. you show up on their radar? Yeah. Okay. I was on their radar because a year prior to that I'd applied for external affairs, as it was then, Okay. for the diplomatic corps, and okay. I went to Canberra. I got got in, get, got through all the IQ. And right. Whatever. So this wasn't unusual. No. They had all my details. They knew who I was. But they also knew I was a journalist. A journalist. Mm. But the interesting thing was the, the whole culture of the organisation was changing at that time. So, right. So instead of being interested in paramilitary, police, defence personnel, they were actually looking for... Regular people. Regular people, yeah. but with degrees and who could analyse. Yep. They were looking for analysts. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. Good old and, joke. <laughs> and, and David quite often jokes that I would be good in ASIO. No, I, I do personally. I you know, <laughs> if you hadn't had any, if you had no association with, with you. me, you'd yeah. be perfect. Yeah. But unfortunately, I've spoiled you. Everyone for knows, unless that is the deep, deep yeah. cover. <laughs> no one realizes I'm actually the the deepest recruiter on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, there you are. You're in the organization. You went through the recruiting process and all of the checks and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't quite that simple. Okay. Oh, re okay. Keep going. Well, now I just finished the story of my recruitment. Uh, because I was flatting with a couple of guys that did something really naughty at that time. Oh, early okay. Early 70s. They'd sent off Ooh. a toilet roll to to the government in West Australia yeah. and said, your policies are giving us the shits. That's not that naughty. Uh, well, Back then it was. The, Austra <laughs> the federal, or Australian Federal Police, is, well, the Commonwealth, Commonwealth Police, Police as yep. I were called then, yep. were very interested in that and hmm. ASIO knew about it. And I, my address... <laughs> came up oh. as their address. You were flagged. I was yep. flagged. Mm. So they wanted me to admit that. That was the only secret I had, the only mm. bit of the only bit of evidence they had against me. Other than that, I was as clean as a whistle. Yep. Yeah. So it took another interview before the penny dropped. Uh. And I said, look, are you talking about this toilet roll thing that, that these two idiots that I told were idiots for doing it? Mm. And after that, it went really smoothly okay. and I was yeah, recruited yeah. and brought over to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. because uh, you quite often talk about that, David, how um, they just want you to admit the truth. Yeah. They don't care if it's a, if you've done something bad. I mean, depending on what it was. But, yeah. like, they just want you to tell the truth. Look, as we have we, uh, said quite often, as long as you confess or admit that this has happened, you can't be compromised, mm. right? So as soon as you've got something that you're going to – if you're going to keep that secret – and. It's a toilet roll being mm. sent to the government. Who's mm. really going to care about that? So the, the problem wouldn't have been the toilet roll. The problem would have been your attitude towards the toilet yeah. roll. 
I can't believe we're talking about toilet rolls. I know. I mean, it's giving me the shits. Yeah, there, <laughs> there we go. Boom, boom. Yeah. And we're away. <laughs> so what they recruit you and? Yeah, so I was in the first uh, graduate intake. Yep. Yeah, this is about 70, 71 actually. Uh-huh. Of regular people. Yeah, and the training went on for a year. And wow. it was across the board. So I was in various offices. I was around various part, various traps of the organisation, mm. mainly in the, in the head office in 469 St Kilda Road. Yep. Um, and there was there were 13 of us. Wow. Now, at the end of the 12 months, there were two of us. Oh, really? Oh, yes. yeah. You get eliminated. Oh, oh. No, yeah. they decided it wasn't for them. Oh. oh, I was hoping that, you know, you'd have that guy with the little thing going, the, tr- you've been, you've been the organization has spoken. Yeah. No one was shot, No, sadly. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. happily. <laughs> okay, so there was two of you. So people were like, oh, no, wait, I can't do this. Yeah. 12, was it, it was an intensive 12 months. Right. Yeah. And you, I mean, I'm not saying you had to sell your soul, but you've got to be able to tell lies yeah. and live a lie. Yeah, of course. And that's the tension. And David would know this. Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm so good with my marriage is because I can just live the lie. Okay. <laughs> but if you're on the sh- what we call the sharp end, the operational yeah. end, which yeah, I yeah, was, yeah. then it's real life. You're doing it with people you've never met or you and you want to recruit as assets or whatever. Wow. So it's um it becomes you start to live the lie. Yeah. You've so got to be exceptionally convincing. All right. And you've also there's. It, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Gross Point Blank with John Cusack, yep. he, he plays a guy who winds up. He's being, great. It's one of my favorite yeah, movies. It's one of my favorite films too. But the one thing he says is there's there's certain moral moral ambiguity that I had that allowed me to do my job. Yeah. And in a way, there is that sort of moral ambiguity. You still have a moral compass, but you've got to be able to go. I'm going to ignore the moral compass to get the job done. Yeah. And I think that's one of the real skills of a, an operational intelligence officer. Not so much. Wolfheads like me that just push trolleys around. But for the operational intelligence officer, there has to be that point where you go, I understand that this is maybe morally dubious, but I've got to make this decision. I've got to get it for the greater moral good. So there's that. I, I can understand why out of 16 people, 14 of them would turn around and go, yeah, so I can't do this. Yeah. So what was it about the process that made you think I could stick with this? I wanted to test myself. Right. Only child. Um, mm-hmm. So I grew up self-contained. Yeah, I made all my own entertainment. I could operate as a as a singleton. Yeah, yeah, and it was comfortable mm. in in that part of my skin. Um, not everyone can do that, but you've also got to be part of a team, and you've got to be a team player. Yeah, yeah. Um, what you said, David, about you know the moral compass is exactly right. But the other part of it is that you're backing a team up. So yeah. if you if you drop the ball. There's other people put at risk or a whole operation can be blown or put at risk. I just want to note there that I was told that I was right. I mean, I know it doesn't happen a lot. You are like a child. He needs constant, like, admiration and affection. I just need confirmation that I know what I'm doing. No, it was sometimes, sometimes, not at podcasting. I'm happy to fertilise your asides. (laughs) I really am. Please Please don't, please don't. (laughs) How am I going to get my head out of this room? So you you finish off the course. Yeah. And then what happens next? Next, I realised that I wanted to be on the operational end. Right. But I still needed to work as an analyst because I needed needed to know the backdrop right. of where the threats were coming from, yeah. why, why an organisation like this existed, why we were doing stuff and telling lies and, and being paid mm. to do it by and the that, taxpayer. Yeah, and that, just to clarify at this stage, yeah. what was 
who was the bad guy? Who who what were we thinking when it came to government and assets and Okay. So the best way I can answer that is yep. to tell you that my, one of my immediate bosses at that time, talking the early seventies, sat down with me and he said, I want you to read all of the cases okay. globally around the world. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm able to, to write the books I can now write, yeah. <laughs> particularly my first book, which is about how the Russian or how the KGB trains its illegals. Wow. Four-year training. Wow. Yeah. It's an amazing story, but, and they're probably still doing it. But I sat down and for two or three, a couple of years anyway, absorbed all of these cases. Mm. And by the end of that period, I was convinced that there were, the Soviet Union was a massive threat. Yeah. And there were other players in, in the world too. And look, there were threats from friends. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Mm. Always. Australia is fair game. It was naive. It still hadn't grown up. So we, we were still vulnerable. Mm. And uh, as it turned out, we became even more vulnerable as the years progressed. Yeah, and that's something you mentioned uh, uh, on your website when I went to it. And I'll, I'll post a link on our – Thank you. Our Twitter – Sorry. Handle at Podcast. Yep. <laughs> at, on Twitter, the X, artist formerly known X, as Twitter. X. X. The formerly, yep. So we'll basically put that. But you, you talk about how, you know, was Australia that naive? And that, of course, as your career went on, you discovered it. But just going back to your career, that, that career path of going into analysis is pretty much the standard career path you'd have for an intelligence officer these days, isn't it? Um, it depends. Yeah, yeah it depends. Because I can't imagine you put someone in the field without them having a really solid idea of what's going on in the background. It was then, but bear in mind, the people they brought straight in, into the ground at, to the sharp end yeah. before they started these graduate courses had came come straight out off the streets as police officers yeah. or defence personnel, army officers, whatever, including Mr. Peacock. Mm. Now, with that that quantum shift in their recruiting policy, how much did the the fact that they were ex-coppers and ex-army officers really colour the way the organisation went about its business? Very much so. Yeah. Um, given that it started from the Director General, uh, of who course, ex-army. Uh, uh, Brigadier. Um, Brigadier Spry. The culture at the time was I would uh, align it to the sort of culture that I subsequently experienced when I joined immigration, which suddenly, mm. which became um, a paramilitary organisation controlled by the customs side. Yeah. Well, the culture prevailed. So it was, I'm right, do what I do, yeah. not necessarily what I say, mm. do what I say, not necessarily what I do, but you are learning, I'm in control. So it was a paramilitary culture and it took decades to, to eat through that. And it was a male paramilitary culture too. My yep. God, that really explains my father because my father used to say that to me all the time. Ex-military officer, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. You know, and that same. My my dad as well. Yeah, He's it's a very officer. military way. Yeah. Military way of thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, yeah. So you're doing some analysis. How long were you in the organisation all up? Thirty years, less six 30 weeks. Thirty years. Okay, so less six weeks. So Didn't again, quite make it. Didn't quite make the thirty I years. I did actually because uh, Dennis Richardson, bless him, yeah, agreed to my request to be granted a thirty-year um, medallion. What? Oh, nice. Why didn't you just wait the six weeks? <laughs> because I was going into another job. Oh, okay, Sydney. cool, cool. Right, that makes sense. So anyway, you're you've just come out. You're doing some analysis. Mm -hmm. Then, where do you get to like deciding what your next move is, or how does that come about? You've got to learn the ropes. You yeah. want to know where you want to go and what and what you want to focus on. And I knew mm. very early that I wanted to focus on what I saw, having read all these cases, mm. was by far the biggest threat to this country, 
which was the KGB and GRU, the Soviet apparatus. Yeah. So I would imagine then you went into the field, you're given cases. I would imagine in that time there would be quite some interesting stories. Well, when you, when you say I went in the field, I indeed went, uh, joined um, Ian Peacock's team uh, mm-hmm. when I was posted into Sydney That's as right. on the operational side in right. 1978. Wow. And what a time it probably was in 1978. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, King's Cross, all of that. Hilton bombing. Yep. Yeah, there's Hilton yep. going oh, on. Of course, the Which Hilton bombing. in my book three, incidentally. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, we're going to go through the list. No, that's um, all right. Yeah. Then you're with Ian Peacock, and mm. that became, as we found out from the ABC recently, that became a massive, massive thorn in ASIO's side. Well, the, the problem we knew there was a problem. I'd been told even after, even months after joining in the early 70s, by senior people in head office in Melbourne at that time, that there was a problem. We were hitting brick walls. We weren't that bad. Mm. There were some mm. really, really good people doing some brilliant stuff, and it was all coming to naught. Okay. Very, very um, subtly coming to naught in a way that if you put yourself in your opponent's position, they were doing it very well. Yeah. Mm. They were outplaying us. They were out-chessing us. Yep. Chess moving us. Yeah. And that turned out to be the fact that there was someone working for them inside the loop. So, yeah, well, I mean, when I went up to Sydney, it was like, okay, this is is a legacy. It's probably going to be here too. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was was national. It wasn't just Sydney we're talking about. As it turned out, Sydney's now been identified as as from the the Four Corners episode. But um, it was bigger than Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So th- we know that Ian Peacock has been you know, t- tacitly identified as the, the mole, but were there, would, would you say there were other moles within the organisation that were never to, uncovered? There would have to be. Just, just consider what happened. Mm. 19 files of Jordan Pavlovich Lazovic disappear yep. in head office or in, uh, wherever it was, but it wasn't in Sydney. Mm. Now, yeah. for Peacock to have engineered that or to have done it, to have uh, done a subterfuge visit, and pull those files, uh, that would have been extremely difficult. Someone would have pinned it. I can honestly say that to carry 19 files out of that building would be damn near impossible, uh, like not and not yeah. be spotted doing it. Yeah. You'd have to have a bloody big suitcase, and if you're walking out of the building with a bloody big suitcase, a guard is going to ask you to open the bag. So How? who did it, David? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I was wearing a really big coat. Um, <laughs> so you've committed your life to something like this. What does it feel like to know that there were people around you who had turned? Well, devastating because yeah. not only was I working, uh, was I being, all my work was coming to naught, yeah. but in fact I was working for the opposition. Yeah. Right. In, without realising you were feeding the opposition to, yeah. to get the, the one up on the stuff that yeah. you were doing. Their, their file on me would have been quite substantial, but also my team team members. Yeah. Anyone that uh, Peacock in, and anyone and any other trader was involved in yeah. would have been asked questions like, who is he? I want all a, a full bio. Yeah, right. A, B, C, D, E. Yeah. I would have been E. Yeah. So... Yep. Yeah, we talked we talked about that when um the Four Corners app came out and how devastating it would have been for the people around him and just also what kind of person it would take to kind of create bios and hand that information around people that you work with and trusted colleagues to the enemy. Like it takes a certain person to do that. 
Well, if you mm. look at the Hanson case, if you look at mm. the Ames case, Hanson was psychologically damaged. Yeah. Ames was an ego maniac. Yeah. It's um, all ego, really, wouldn't it it's be? It's massive ego. Yeah. And it's also disenchantment. And this is yep. probably the best guess. Yeah. Wasn't that the case with, with Peacock? That yeah. He'd been overlooked mm. for promotion. Anger. And, yeah. Anger. And what better way to show that you you were good for the job than show that you can work against them? But, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's ego again, right? Yeah. What well, I mm. should have been in charge, this should be all about me. Exactly. So you've spent your 30 years in there. What are some of the big yarns that you pulled out of it? And also, I, I, I mean, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, but how do you get to a point where you can write books and kind of weave your life into it? Michelle, it's cathartic. That's the only way <laughs> I you... can resolve the problem I've just told you yeah. about about working against my yeah. country when I love this bloody country. Yeah, and I, I thought I was working for it. Yeah, it's like therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is working. Yeah, <laughs> you're like I'm not he quite there. He does it with he does it with really <laughs> great political thrillers. I do it by being stupid. <laughs> you do do <laughs> it by doing being stupid. I know. Well, we'll call it something. It's, I don't know if it's catharsis. How do you get to a point, though, where you are allowed to kind of – because we spoke about how, David, you were outed. Yeah, I was outed publicly. How do you get to a point where you're kind of outed or you can speak about this? Well, it's very hard putting myself in a, in a man, ASIO management mm. headspace it's very hard to make an enemy out of someone that's got such so much stuff in their head right. that could blow the lid off so many things. So there are a lot of things that you've got inside your head that people don't even know about that would actually just blow people's minds. It's all camouflaged in my writing, oh, really? but none of it is is real. It's what if. Okay, yeah, right, right. And that's what fiction is what if. Okay. Do you have a secret book somewhere with all of these, <laughs> all of the things that actually really happened and if something happens to you, that book goes public? Uh, no, because <laughs> I don't think that needs to happen. I've okay. already been put on notice. Okay. Um, have you? Section 18.2 of the ASIO yeah. Act makes it quite clear that if you – divulge anything that's going to compromise anything the organisation has done or, or is doing, Yep, right. you will be prosecuted under that the sec- section of that Act. So is it, when were you put on notice? Uh, well, just before I did the Four Corners. <laughs> oh, so they, I mean, that's the thing. I, I so had, they didn't care about the books? Uh, no, I haven't had any feedback oh, about the books okay. at all. Okay. I've, I've had feedback, I have, and I believe I've told this story before, how I was taken aside by two ASIO officers while I was in Melbourne doing I Spied the Comedy mm. Show, and it was like it was this big, you know, don't go. I was going back to my apartment, and it was like, you know, don't try and don't think you can run away. And I'm like, where the hell am I going to run to? Got them to take me downstairs for a drink in the bar at the Athenaeum, and the classic was that I'm like, what's the story? And they're like, you know, what are you doing? You're doing this show. And I'm like, come on, guys, you've had years to ask me this question. They went, can we get some tickets? You're booked out. I'm like, is that it? And they're like going, yep, that's the only reason we did it. They did it to freak me out. But look, my thing is, as you said, there are things we can't talk about. There's things we Mm. shouldn't talk about. I know that the world wants to know, you know, that Australia wants to know what's really going on. You don't need to know what's really going on. And the thing is, as long as we play the line of going, this is my way of talking about ASIO is this is what it was like to work there and this is what it has taught me while I worked there, as opposed to these are all the secrets that we have. You don't need to know the secrets. You just Mm. need to know that there are people out there doing this job that can be bloody awful, incredibly exciting and amazing and they know this stuff, but you don't need to. Yeah. It does kind of feel like 
you know, in the 70s and 80s, there was probably a little less transparency in the role and the job. And, you know, ASIO, because I guess there's more questions are asked and we we have an expectation that government is going to be a little bit more transparent. So, you know, we've got Burjo, the current boss, who's, who's a little bit more transparent in what he says and, and giving out the information without giving it all away. Was this how you saw ASIO going? Did you expect that it would go in this direction? I think when our attorney decided to raid headquarters and Cam- or Canberra and headquarters office on Good old March, <laughs> that's when I started to question the leadership um, yep. because that's a third world country operation. Yeah. Mm. And that story you've just told about being taken to the pub, if you're in Russia, you wouldn't be here now. No, of course not. You would have been taken to the pub, but <laughs> you would have disappeared into the men's toilet and not, not re-emerged. Yeah. yeah. That's why I love this country. Because we allow you to continue. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and also and within I'm not reason, doing any within, harm. within reason. Yeah, within reason. Yeah. But yeah. the the raid again, my book three. But the raid, mm. uh, and it was a raid. It was a paramilitary. There were police, and I have an interesting story because I walked straight into it. <laughs> Did you? And I, I was a young analyst. <laughs> yeah, at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. So what? What the was yeah. probably the best comment I yeah. could, could have made. But interestingly, um, as I was going up the stairs, being told to assemble with the with the rest of our uh, my poor colleagues in the auditorium to be addressed by uh, Senator Murphy, our minister. I was intercepted by my director coming down, being escorted Mm. down, absolutely pale. You know, he was was in shock. Mm. And he turned to me as he was coming down and I was coming up all under escort and he said, get out of here. I turned around, I went down to my desk, I organised my dog tags and walked out past the police cordon and um, we set up an operation in a colleague's place. Some people had been warned that this was going to happen so they didn't come to work. Yeah. So we, in, in someone's home, I won't tell you who mm. it was, someone's home, we were monitoring what was happening in our head office. And, Which, and that, that, that is really quite an alarming thing because I didn't know that story, the fact that you then went off-site and set up a way just to monitor and, your own organisation. Yes. And, and what was happening just for everyone who's probably not across the story? Okay, we're talking the... Um, 1973, mm. two? 73. Yeah. He was suspicious. Uh, the minister did not believe ASIO was withholding information yep. in relation to Croatian extremism. Yeah. Okay. Because at this stage, terrorism was in its early, early stages and there was paranoia mm. about bombs going off, people being killed. Some people had already Ustashi, been killed. And there, Ustashi, there was stuff going between the Serbians and the Croats in Petersham of all places yeah. in Sydney and the Ustashi was supposedly yeah. training up in the Blue Mountains. Okay, yep. Yeah. So that's the gist of it. It's a mm. lot more complicated yeah. than yeah. that. But he, he lost trust in his organisation and his solution, because he had a, a ghost whisperer alongside him, uh, by the by, the name of Milty, <laughs> his solution was to raid his organisation. Right. Yeah. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that got me thinking um, more broadly than I'd been thinking previously. There's so many places I want to go with this, but like with the way ASIO was when you were there and where it is now, has it moved, do you think, effectively to deal with what they have to deal with now? Because, of course, it's more cyber-based, terrorism kind of, through. we went through a whole period of lone wolf attacks and it was really hard to kind of track down organisations and all that kind of stuff. Do you think ASIO has kept a pace? Well, I'm 22 years out of the organisation. Yeah, but from so, from your perspective, okay. I'm seeing it. Yeah, I understand the question, but all I can do is speculate. Yeah, of course. Cyber um, espionage, Yeah. Mm. one, 
Um, but also in future, and probably our kids and certainly our grandkids are going to experience this, that if there is another war, it'll be probably controlled in space mm. through mm-hmm. satellite technology and satellite weaponry. Yep, okay. We already see this with drones, but I'm talking higher up. I'm talking yep. serious satellite defence yep. weaponry. Well, as we were talking... Our, with Pine Gap. Yeah, last, our episode last week on Pine yep. Gap, basically how that is now putting Australia in the frame of satellite warfare in that it's one of the it's one of the ground relay stations for at least three, maybe four mm. GPS satellites mm. or, uh, uh, was it, globally positioned satellites. With that, I mean... There has been a paradigm shift in the way ASIO works. I mean, particularly after the Lionel Murphy raid, we then had the was it the Woods Royal Commission, and that started changing a lot of the culture within the organisation. I remember the paradigm shift again when, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was a major change in the organisation as well. And it was an, a time when you were in the organisation, correct? Yeah, right. We're so, talking 1990, yeah. and thereafter. So I was still managing a team running assets against what used to be the KGB and became the SVR and Mm. and FSB. It was an opportunity which, which, uh, as it turned out, with the likes of Matrokin and that, Mm. produced evidence that led us to Peacock. So that, that, that was the plus side. On the minus side, everyone sort of threw up their hands and said, different ball game. Yeah. No longer a threat. Let's look at the real threat which was counter-terrorism, yep. you know, maybe racial extremism, whatever, a right-wing extremism, and they dropped the ball because guess what? The Russians were still in the game. Yeah, and in fact, what... they were better at it mm. post-KGB. The F- FSB and the, the, particularly the SVR were running operations differently and more strategically. Yeah. And probably without their own country having eyeballs on them as well. So they were able to kind of go underground and do their own thing. I think one of the things that would have happened is without the ideology, the overall ideology communist, communist ideology yeah. over the top of it, like really that being, being the, the prism mm. through which it went, when it went more oligarchical in that now that, you know, the, basically, you know, Putin, who is ex-intelligence, mm. Who's to say he's not still intelligence, right? It changed the way they played the game. They went from playing for an ideology for playing yes. for a result. I think is that might be the difference in what's happened. But it was still anti-West because oh, yeah. for many, many years, since post-war, every school child had been mm. inculcated with an anti-West, certainly anti-American. Yeah. And that didn't stop. No. And we now see it, it's come out with, with Putin's Russia. Yeah. Yep. And yes, he probably still is an intelligence officer, but a, right at the top. Oh, yeah. He um, runs the show. He's not going to lose those skills. That's why he's still alive, because yeah. he's a counterintelligence professional. Always. Knows how to protect himself. Yeah, of course. And um, when you look at something like, I mean, Ukraine, that's, that's to me, that's got to be one of the biggest mistakes he's ever made. Yes and no. Um, he He... Um, in my view, yes, initially. Yep. I think mm. it was he was really surprised, but he will always try and capitalise. It's yep. like opportunity out of threat. Yeah, yep. true. So that's how he's used the Middle East, in my view. That's just my view. Yep. And he's he's also, now he's dug in. Um, he's still retained and he wants the land, he wants the Soviet Union back. Yeah. He wants the empire. Well, I he think wants he wants the, the Russian empire back, empire back even does. more than that. Yeah. This is, um, and he's a psychopath. 
So yes. he will kill as many people as he can yep. in order to achieve his objective. I mean, he was not opposed to killing his own people in order to achieve well, his objective. Well, that's, that's what he's a product of the Cold War. Yes. Right. They're, he's very much a product of the Cold War. But at the same token, he's a product of the Cold War who's taken a look at the 21st century and gone, I can make bank out of this. Yep. And he's, a sh- he's an exceptionally shrewd operator. And he's made sure that the people around him are either absolutely compliant and supportive or they're just gone. Suddenly it's Or they like, fall out of windows. Here's your penthouse apartment. <laughs> here's your hot tub. Yeah. All you got to do is get the hot tub into the, oh, you fell out the window. Yeah. You know, yep. that's the thing that goes on. You know, he grew up in, in uh, St. Petersburg, yeah. immediate post-war St. Petersburg, which was bombed. Yeah. Yep. So his childhood was one of the probably worst childhood you, you could ever hope to have. Oh, God, yeah. He was, he was a bit like me as an only child. He had to look after himself mm. and he had to do everything himself. So he's a self-made child yep. and teenager and young adult. And when the KGB knocked on his door because they could see he was doing stuff, mm. that was like, I'm home. Yeah. yeah. I'm yep. home. All, yep. of this, all of the deprivation I've gone through, all the hardship, all the struggle, all the fights, all the, you know. Yep. Who knows what he went through mm. as a child? Everything I've gone through, I'm now getting paid back for it. Yep. So what made you decide that you'd had enough of the organisation? Well, for me, it was quite simple. I didn't want to go to Canberra. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was, this, was this when it was still in Melbourne and you were, you were one no, of... No, I was in Sydney. Oh, yeah. You're, I oh, right. Sorry, yes. Sydney. Right. I fell in Who love doesn't? with Sydney. That's another reason why I left Melbourne, to come to Sydney yes. as, as an opera. I love this place. We all love yeah, Sydney. Yeah, same here. Um, yep. But I could see what Canberra was doing to uh, they were some, pulling people back in to some of the young people who I was uh, nurturing mm-hmm. in Sydney and who I knew were ambitious enough to go to Canberra because yep. if you're ambitious, you go to Canberra. Yep, you go to head office. Yeah, yeah. that's head where the promotions are. Yeah. that's where you become a director. Right. I would I would have loved to be to have been promoted to that level, but it was never never going to happen because. I'd only served in Melbourne head office, yeah, and that didn't count. No, right. Apparently, okay. the only reason I got a job at ASIO was I. The move to Canberra saw fifty percent of the organisation resign. Because mm. Melbourneites don't like to. It's like Sydneyites leaving Sydney. Well, actually, Sydneyites don't care. No, because they can always come back. Yeah. But Melbourneites just want to be in Melbourne, right? Yeah. And a lot of people. I mean, there were a lot of people that did move, but there were a lot of people that didn't. And because of that, hole opened up. They were desperate for people, and my God, I was. An they smart, must have been so desperate. I was smart enough to so, get you there. So desperate. There is another factor in my case. Okay. Yeah. In the by the early nineties, not, not only had we dropped the ball in relation to what the Russians weren't and mm. were doing. Mm. But um, the culture of the organisation at that time was becoming increasingly pernicious to the point where middle management, of which I was a member and I had a lot of, lot of close colleagues across the organisation that, at that level, basically took on senior right. management. And that's a bit like fighting City Hall. You yeah. don't yeah. beat City Hall. So City Hall had a big mea culpa meeting and fell on our sword, fell on their sword allegedly. Allegedly, was that the was that the uh, I'll just say the B word. The B word, yeah, yes. the B word, yes. So For those the, of you out there who know the, what we're after, talking about, after the sword falling episode, yeah. they returned to their um, their tower in Canberra and decided that to sol- the solving of the problem would be to target. All the troublemakers at my level, which is the um, mm. the senior le- senior management, not executive management level, yeah. just target them to um, boarding us out. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I was made I was made an offer, uh, along with a number of us, and I was mm-hmm. about to leave, 
when I thought, well, what will I do if I leave? I've got mm. kids at school still. Mm. It's in the 90s. So I approached the ABC with a suggestion for a television series yeah. called Secrets. And, and it got sold. Really? And they put it on. Wow. And I was told not to do it because I still oh. hadn't given them a final decision. Oh, I was now. refused permission to do it. At that stage, it, it was out of my hands because the ABC had already, commissioned had already signed the contract yeah. and yeah. been commissioned. Now, here's a little story that I'm going to tell you I, that you're going to love. Well, I, have no, I had no career after that Okay. in the early 90s. So okay. 10 or 11 years later, I was plateauing. Just, I just, I've Go, got to say okay. this right now. This Sorry, really he's important. just bursting Secrets. the talk. Right. Go. So when this when this show that was being made, you were in the, you were out, in the TV. I show. was in it. Yeah, right? of course that you were. That was the first job I, I had when were. I left. <laughs> <laughs> when I played a Bruce, I think I played Bruce one. You did. You played a Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> I played a Bruce. Right. I don't know if I wrote that episode. I wrote one of the episode. Um, I know, but the thing that was funny about it was, you know, I could never get a job doing surveillance because I was too tall. And good looking, I like to say. That. Okay. I was basically told by the surveillance division, no, sorry, mate, we can't use you. Yeah. You know, you're, you're too obvious. Absolutely. And then Because a memo came out saying, whatever you do, be very careful of the ABC call because they're after people. You know, they're yeah. try, trying to get information yeah. on ASIO for this show. So I rang the ABC and got put through to the producer <laughs> and went, can I get a job? I used to work for ASIO. And they gave me a job as a surveillance officer. Circle You're was like, complete. Finally. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Finally. Uh, we all do our little bit, don't we? <laughs> yeah, you did. That was a fun <laughs> Didn't time. Didn't do me and any good, though, because I decided to stay on because right. I had school fees. Yeah, of course. Um, et cetera, other commitments. Yeah. Um, and, well, there, there are a few other stories about jobs I was applying for that I that got undermined as a result of right. what was happening. Yeah. Right. But the bottom line is that I stayed on, but I knew it by that stage, yeah. um, particularly as I wanted to stay in Sydney, that I would re- remain at a senior officer level doing... And go no further. And go no further. Yeah. So you're at that level. How do you finally get out and where do you go? I apply for jobs outside, in Sydney, mm. in Sydney. And uh, I had enough contacts around and people knew my skills. Uh, mm. So I got a job with the National Crime Authority, which is a brilliant authority. Unfortunately, yep. someone trod on it uh, <laughs> early part of the century. Yeah. Uh, or at least it got rebadged to yeah. the Australian yeah. Crime Commission, but it was a, a brilliant organisation. I was the National Security Manager. Okay. And when did you decide that you were going to be a writer? How did that come about? Um, I'd always, well, be, because I'd always done writing as a journalist. Yeah. yeah. I'd written various things. I, I started writing a play. Mm. Um, and that play became Narcissist Unleashed. So the play was about my mother who died of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the heroine in book six, Narcissist Unleashed, is called Catherine, Catherine Carter, who was actually my mother. Mm-hmm. Right. But this Catherine Carter was a Cold War warrior for MI6. And she had all this stuff in her head and she was she came back to Australia. She had Alzheimer's and Secrets were starting to leak. Right. Starting to drip down, and yeah. people were after them. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's a good plot. It's a great plot. <laughs> Is it a play? Because I'd really like to do it. I could play I could play in it. Well, <laughs> it's not an it? impro, unfortunately. Damn it. No, no. Damn it. And it's not a comedy. It doesn't oh, sound like damn a comedy. It's not a comedy. I can no. do not a comedy. So you. <laughs> Thanks for that look, that sideways glance you just gave me then. So anyway, how many books have you done now? Look, I've got eight published. Okay. The ninth is with one of my colleagues looking at the um, Islamic cultural aspects of mm. it. I want that to be accurate. Yeah. 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 Um, I want that that part of the community to be well represented and truly yeah. represented, and mm. not 
not not know, glossed over. Yeah, not glossed over. You don't want yeah. a cliche. You don't want caricature. Yeah. You want it to. But I want up. to be right. I want yep. to be correct. So that that hopefully book nine will be out. That's called a different agenda. Yep. Uh, it ends with the Cronulla riots. So that's yeah. the period, 2003, 4, 5. So oh, wow. Alan Jones is in that book? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, let me tell you. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, actually, sort of, sort of. Yes. Sort of, because he was a player. Yeah, um, he was. All those people on Struggle Street stop struggling. It just yeah. makes it hurt more. <laughs> and book 10, I'm yeah. two chapters through, and that focuses on um, Pine Gap. Yeah. But oh. it's based in Darwin. And picks up on, it uh, still picks up on a legal network, right in Darwin. So it's it after f- what forty fifty years yeah. of doing Gull Against the Wind, which was about a legal network, big big illegal network yeah. based in Canberra. I'm reintroducing that illegal network, and it's also got to be Russian run. Oh my god! How long does it take you to write a book? Not do you, long are you do you sit down and just write all day? Like how do you how do you do the book? <laughs> well, I'm working on the historical books. Yeah. Um, so I'm working on that period of history. I look at all the key mm. events in that part of our history. And then you come up with a plot, and or they're I just come historical. Up with plot around that. Yeah. The okay. what ifs around it. Okay. Okay. So, like for instance, um, Gull Against the Wind. Um, yep. Is talks about the Skripov case. Yep. Um, We've done that. Yep. The JFK assassination. Yep. The Clenched Hand, which yep. is the second book, looks at the Harold Holt disappearance. Okay. And, and also Bogle Chandler. And Bogle Chandler, etc., okay. etc. Et I won't go through the list. Yeah. So that's that's the first, n- not first draft, but that's the first plot line. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you and, kind of weave a narrative through. And then I've got to find the characters, but the characters, yeah. some of the characters, will I'll pull from the past. Yeah. Okay. Because they're still there, they're still in the organisation. Mm. One of them, Rufus Delaney, in my, in my um, current books, so book eight, book nine, mm. is the DDG, Deputy okay. Director General. But in uh. book one. In the early 60s, it was a young journalist who okay. got pulled into intelligence almost accidentally. Ah, okay. I know that person too. Right. And that, yeah. that probably rings a few bells. Yes. Well, oh, the DDG. Was it the D- is your DDG character the DDG character that I had a lot of fun with when I was working there? No. Oh. No. Rufus is, is a different DDG because okay. he was a different person. Yeah. I know who you mean though. Exactly. But also <laughs> the young journalist who was pulled into the organisation, that's another person that rings a very, very, very distinct bell. Yep. Okay. I'm yeah, I'm looking. Anna looking at it. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is this is this is how uh, intelligence officers exchange information without exchanging information. Yeah, like the thing about the thing, and yeah. you know, you know you that know, stuff. And yeah, when I did and that, remember, we call it subtext. <laughs> yeah, the text is boring. The subtext is bloody interesting. I call it winking a lot. <laughs> so. I feel I feel like I need to go to the pub now and actually get the stories. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we yeah, can't yeah, record yeah. any of it. No. You know, but you know, sitting down in a pub and having a drink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll you can tell all the stories. Hopefully, we won't have to shoot you as a result. Well, I mean, it would be a damn shame, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'll take the bullet for you. <laughs> Thank you. That would be great. Yeah, that would be fine. So you, you, you do this full time. So you sit down, you just write this. Like I would imagine this would be quite complex. No, I don't do it full time. I'm about to be Rotary president of my local Rotary club. <laughs> I'm heavily involved in my church. I'm yep. a strong Christian. Yep, yep. And I, um, I have a very large uh, family that my wife and I sort of Look after from time oh, to time. They demand your time, do they? <laughs> Damn, it's them. an absolute joy. <laughs> what kind of reaction do you get when you t- when people find out that you worked for ASIO? Yeah, varied, but mm. generally supportive. Yeah, um, I live in a very conservative and part of the world, in yes. Lower North Shore. Yes, people are interested, and yeah. they're interested in the hist- history side of yeah, it. Yeah, um, most of them are my age group, so. I'm talking the same events mm. and situations that they're familiar with anyway. Yep. Yeah, for me, it's mainly incredulity. 
Well, because well, because like David is an absolute extrovert. In case you haven't met him, yeah, the worst so, person. He's like an spine. extrovert, extrovert. Whereas like you're a bit more of an introvert. I can character. tell you where I am exactly because we all get tested when you're in management. Yeah, yep. you all go through these management courses. I yep. tell you where I am exactly. I answered all the survey questions. Yeah, and when they lined us all up, because I gave us each a score, yeah. I was dead in the middle. Introvert, extrovert. Introvert, extrovert. Yep. So I can walk into a room, and if yep. I feel as though I'd like to extrovert, yep. I'll extrovert. I would have said introvert extrovert for you as well because you need that kind of bit of extrovertedness to to be able to like fit into any kind of scenario yes right whereas i walk into a room everyone knows you're there i know (laughs) everyone knows you're there (laughs) and i got i i actually when i did the test i was extrovert extrovert as well you're extrovert extrovert yeah i was extrovert extrovert double shot extrovert yeah 100 yeah totally well look it's i could talk to you um forever but i think we need to have you come back when you finish your pine gap Please. Look. Okay. Yeah, I'm two it's, chapters in. That'll take a little while. No, that's I, okay. I mean, apparently we're going to be around for a while. I've got a lot of reading to do because I, I I I started reading The Clenched Hand and yeah. I was like, oh, bugger, it's book two. I need to go back and do book one first. And are they, but it's, it does sit independently as oh, well. Oh, they all do. Yes. They're yeah, all yeah. self-contained. And do the, are the books going to be turned into any kind of miniseries, movie, anything like that? Have they I've have approached I missed that? one, a producer, and mm. um, I've never heard back. Okay. But- you know, um, if if you know anything about about that, and I do a bit because of secrets. Yeah. Like you can have a hundred scripts sitting in an inbox, producer's yeah. inbox, and yeah. one might get up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so. we actually through I Spied, the original mm. stage show. A friend and I sat down and actually wrote a TV series. Took it to the Writers Guild. Writers Guild loved it. ABC loved it. Everybody mm. loved mm. it. No. And then nothing happened. Yep. And that's what happens. It's very common. One thing I would like to ask you, and I'd offer my services to you for a very reasonable fee. Oh, here we go. He's you need to turn them going. into audio books. Yeah. Okay. Audio books, because I mean, look, to be perfectly honest, okay. I do so much reading for this that when it comes to actually reading a book, <laughs> I do it through my ear. Audio books are audio books are the way to go, but I yeah, think yeah, we yeah. can we can solve this deal off offline. No, no, no. <laughs> I want to get it on air. <laughs> Um, I could talk to you forever. It was so good. I would love to have you come back and yeah. like delve in a little bit deeper into because I think there's a lot here that we could kind of dissect and I feel like we only glossed over it. But oh, if, totally, totally. if anyone wants to read your books, where do we find them? Harry P. Russell is the name. There is a website. You can get them at Dimmicks. Well, they're I'm published through Amazon. Amazon? Okay, Amazon, easy. Um, so it, it's all online, but some of my books are appearing in, in – you know, the odd bookshop and library. I don't know why. And also overseas. So Because they're Great. good? Because they're yeah. good. Well, they're, like they're relevant. But also the Americans and Brits and other countries are involved. Their services are involved. Yep. Yeah. And they would be interested in reading. Well, but, we, we, have, we have people in America who love listening. So. Oh, God, yeah. We've got people. We've got someone in Poland. Yeah. Just one. I'm worried about that. <laughs> they, I think they're doing it to help with their English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, so look, you're looking – the book one is Gull Against the Wind. Mm. Uh, book two is The Clenched Hand. There's eight books already, mm. nine to come. Oh, one more to come. One more to come. And then uh, do I – did I hear that and then you another might have one. a tenth in the, in the yeah. wheel? In well, I'm writing a tenth, but actually what um, – Millstone is, starts now. Millstone's in 2020, 2021, 22. Yep. And the, the book I've currently finished – Finishes 2005. So do the okay. maths, 2005 up to 20. So I've got 15 years. Most books cover about two or three years. Okay. 
Oh my okay. God, you're going to be reading yourself stupid. But Christmas, <laughs> I like. will I will post the website so everyone can actually have a look at the books that are available. Yep. I'll put that on our Stocking Twitter stuffer. Feed. This is uh, a stocking stuffer. It is the stocking stuffer. <laughs> Especially of for Richard. our listeners because our listeners eat this stuff up. Oh, so, like, this is definitely a yep. must buy. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, true. Harry P. Russell, thank you thank so very much you. for coming in. Thank you. Pleasure.